You're listening to the Crowdfunding Nerds Podcast, a podcast that will help you succeed before, during, and after your crowdfunding event. And now, here is your host, Andrew Lowen. Hey, everybody, and welcome to another awesome episode of Crowdfunding Nerds. I am your host, Andrew Lowen, joined by my co-hosts, as always, Richard and Sean. This time, we're joined by a guest. His name is Joe Slack, and we are going to be talking about how to retain your audience's attention through multiple projects. Joe has multiple projects. We'll just put it lightly. I want to have him introduce himself, but what I really wanted to know, and this is when you know Joe and I connected, I asked Joe what he thought about discussing this topic. In essence, you know, when you we have so many clients that start from, you know, with one project, it's their baby, and then they or they create another game or or you know, that is just not anything near what it is that they created at the first. I, you know, I, I've always found it challenging to get the people that backed your first game to also back the second game if it's so, if it's very different. So I reached out to Joe and agreed to chat about this stuff and I'm really excited. So welcome, Joe. How you doing? Hey, Andrew. I'm doing well. Thank you. How did you hear about the Crowdfunding Nerds podcast? How did you come about it? Oh, I've been listening to this from, I'd say almost day one. I think I've, I've listened to every single episode now because, you know, being a creator and, you know, using Kickstarter and everything, I, I just want to soak up as much information as I can. And I knew about Andrew through the Board Game Design Lab and his work with uh, Gabe Barrett and others. So when I heard the podcast came out, I'm like, well, that's going to be on my playlist. So I just yeah. had to start listening. That's awesome. Cool. And uh, I love your accent. I'm not sure if I like yours more or Sean's. I don't have an accent. What are you talking about? I'm Canadian. Would you say this for me? There's a mouse in the house. There is a mouse in the house. Oh, man. Total giveaway. You're a Canadian. <laughs> what are you talking about? <laughs> well, that's awesome. So I'm Joe Slack. I am a game designer. I've been designing games for about eight years now. I quit my day job about, I'd say about a little over three years ago to do this full time. And I design games. I'm, you know, now more recently a publisher. Uh, I've instructed and taught game design both at uh, the university level and through my own uh, board game design course. I've written four books on game design, and I just live and breathe uh, game design. And uh, you know, just in the last couple of years, uh, become a publisher and been using Kickstarter and, and learning how to build an audience and, and grow from there. Very cool. So. So you've written four books on game design. You have a board game design course and you are a publisher. I know Relics of Rajavahara. Hope I said that right. But yes. I, it's just like the funnest word to say, Rajavahara. <laughs> well, at least you could say it because, you know, when some people go to look for it, sometimes they'll have a hard time. So there's a lesson <laughs> too. be careful how you name your games, because if people can't find them in a search, it can be more difficult. Yeah, yeah, that's that's phonetics are challenging. So what um, so you've, you've created four books on game design and you have a board game design course. I know you've also done like a, I want to say like a virtual convention for the board game design course. That was uh, that was pretty cool. and. And then what games have you published or been involved in? 
Sure. Yeah. So jumping back to the virtual summit. So I started that in 2020. I had the first board game design virtual summit. It was an idea that I had for a while about getting a whole bunch of uh, people from the industry, game designers, publishers, rulebook writers, graphic designers, just uh, like a whole bunch of different people from the industry coming on and talking and doing interviews and helping people learn different aspects of uh the business and board game design and that type of thing. And I, I did my second one last year and I've had a whole bunch of different guests and, you know, it's been very well received. Lots, you know, hundreds and hundreds of people came through, did that. We did some play testing and, and some other events and things like that last year that I added on as well. And in terms of games, um, I've got five games published and one expansion on the way. So my first four games were with other publishers and a couple of them went through Kickstarter. So I learned a little bit from the publisher, you know, being involved that way. And then my more recent game and expansion, uh, Relics of Rajavahara, and then the expansion Montello's Revenge, I launched myself uh, self-publishing through Kickstarter. So uh, that's kind of been my experience, uh, you know, with, with game design more recently. And what would you recommend? Would you recommend that people pursue self-publishing or is there some real advantages going through a publisher? That's a real good question. And one that I get from people who are either interested in the course or have joined the course and are trying to decide because, you know, some people are, you know, they know I, I want to keep total control as I want to self-publish this. And other people are like, oh, I, I, that's way too much work. I want to, you know, pitch. But some people are kind of on the fence. They don't know or they're thinking, oh, maybe I could do a Kickstarter. That sh it doesn't seem, seem too difficult. Well, you know, it's a lot of work going into it. So I think it really comes down to the individual and what your goals are, what you want to do, what you want to be responsible for, and what you want to hand off. So if, if you are okay with running a business, figuring out all the logistics, the manufacturing, all the costs, all the different steps, working with artists and aren't afraid about putting up some capital up front to do all this and take some risks um, and want to keep control, then absolutely you can go ahead and you know try the self-publishing route. But if that's a little too much for you, you know, if you have a lot of other responsibilities, you have a day job, all these other things going on, maybe you want to think about, you know, pitching to publishers as well. And I personally, I take a hybrid approach and that's partially because I'm doing this full time. And, you know, when, when you're doing it full time, you can work on a lot more games than when you're doing it just kind of on the side. So I have way too many games, you know, way more than I could publish myself because, you know, as an individual, you can put up maybe one or two a year, um, but also as Andrew was alluding to at the start, being on brand, really matching. Um, because if I were to go and launch um, a party game after I've launched you know, a strategy game or launch a war game after a word game or something like that, it's, it's gonna fall flat. I'm not gonna have that same audience coming back and being interested in it. So there are definitely some games that I'm working on that I think are better suited to a particular publisher or one of these groups of publishers that does maybe family style games or one that does party games, there would be a better fit. So I can stay on brand with the ones that I'm publishing myself. That is like that, that phrase, get, I don't know if it's just cold here or what, but I got goosebumps from when you said that being on brand, I feel like that is probably the number one thing that a, that a, a publisher coming out with a second game, when they fail, it's oftentimes failing to be on brand. You know, they've done all of this work to develop an email list for myself, for example, you know, I created deliverance. If I came out with some word game or like a, a, you know, a very lightweight puzzle game, it's just not what my audience, not what type of audience I've cultivated. I've got those people that really like number crunching and, and figuring out, 
you know, the, the optimal play and, you know, working together and that sort of thing. A lot of the, the time people are very focused on the games they want to play themselves or a really cool idea they had and they're bringing it to market. But, you know, one of the failure points is, you know, when they bring it to market, their audience doesn't resonate with it. And I think that there are so many ways to like circumvent this problem. Even, you know, let's, let's just say like, I, you know, I decide, okay, I want to make a game that is, you know, a really lightweight version of deliverance. that's just going to be cards only or, or something like that. I'm just taking all the complexity out and whatever. I, I feel like I should be able to talk to my people and ask them if that's a thing they want. Is it just as simple as that sometimes to like, how do you know when you're on brand or not? You know, is it just something that you decide or how, what is your brand? Yeah. How do you define it's, that? It's, it's a really tough thing sometimes to, to try to figure that out. So one of the approaches I did was I, I did go back to my backers and I just asked them one simple question. I kept, you know, I don't want to launch a survey with, you know, a hundred questions and have, you know, nobody fill it out. Just one simple question. What was the main reason that you backed relics of Rajvahara? And I, I basically said, is it for like the nostalgia factor? Cause it's kind of like a, a video game turned into uh, a um, board game uh, type of style, like an NES type kind of puzzly game put into that. Or did you like the, was it for the theme of the game? Because I put kind of like an Indiana Jones tomb Raider kind of a theme on it. Or was it because you like puzzly thinky kind of games and overwhelmingly people came back saying they loved the puzzly thinky aspect of that. And that really, really helped me narrow down my brand because I was thinking, well, you know, for my next game or for my next project, am I going to sort of make something more nostalgic or should it be kind of along the same theme? And the, the puzzly aspect really resonated with people. And I was kind of happy with that too, because I like puzzly games, playing them myself and creating them. And that really allowed me to say, okay, well, now I know I have a direction. This is my brand. I'm going to be making puzzly games that make you feel smart you know when you figure something out you feel smart so the games that i'm working on and as you're saying you know game designers come up with all sorts of different ideas and i don't want to be put in a box and only come up with puzzly games but the ones that i do are going to fit really really well with this brand and maybe if i have a word game or if i have a party game that's going to be a better fit for another publisher when that's their brand so you know i think it is a really good question and and when you're first starting out, you really don't know what your brand is. I think it's when, after you have that first game out, you can kind of ask those questions, talk to people who played your game and enjoyed it and ask them what it was about it. And if you get a very, very strong vibe from a, like a high percentage of people saying, this is what I really liked about it. That's really what you should probably try to focus your attention on. Cause if you make games that are in a totally different realm, you're probably not going to have your audience coming back at least as often or, or as excited about your next game, because it's, it's not a similar feeling. It doesn't mean your game has to be exactly the same, but there should be some elements to it that people really resonate with. Yeah, I, I hate to say this, but it, it reminds me of the Disney brand. Back in the good old days, you know, when Disney released a, a, a movie, um, if it was like involved princesses, very happy, rated G, it was under the Disney label. But if it was a more adult-themed movie or had like a higher rating like a PG-13 or higher, they put it under their Touchstone label. That way they kept it separate from the Disney brand, but they still, it was still their their movie and that, you know, they, it, it appealed to a wider audience. Have you ever thought of like just doing like multiple brands 
like i know you say you you, know, you, you give it to another developer but w- have you ever thought about like just mm-hmm. creating another brand or style like that and, and publishing yourself the like a different style of game well it could be a consideration for the future i mean considering i only have the uh the main game relics of rajvahara and then the expansion right now um, I wouldn't be looking to that too soon, but it, it is a very good point because if you give an example of say um, Smirk and Dagger games that's run by Kurt Covert, he makes games that are backstabby, take that kind of games. Like, you know, when you're going into one of those games, you know, you're going to be, you know, going after each other, Losing right? relationships. It's, yeah, exactly. Exactly. So you, you know what you're getting into. And I think at one point the story goes, he put out a game that wasn't like that. And people were like, you know, it's a good game, but this isn't what I was expecting from Smirk and Dagger, right? So he actually made an offshoot. He makes Smirk and Laughter. So those are the games that more create a different experience, different memories, that kind of thing, but aren't about backstabbiness. So I think it's a very valid point. If you are thinking about doing that and branching out, it's really well well worth considering uh, branching out and doing two different brands or or multiple brands to, to put them under so that there isn't that kind of confusion. And we've seen that with, you know, big game developers like Blizzard and Valve, where they're sort of known for their hardcore PC gamers. And then whenever they try to produce something on mobile, their fans just absolutely oh, hate it. So I think it's, it's, a, it's almost become like a meme uh, when like at these conventions where they, where, where they announce these new Diablo products. 4 release. It's only on iPhone. Yeah. Isn't, and, uh, isn't WoW coming to iPhone or something? <laughs> But it's very similar where they try to pivot, but clearly they've they've developed a demographic of people who just do not appreciate those types of games. So yeah, I think there's there's lots of merit in that. So Joe, when did you feel that it was ready to go full time? I sort of want to know the transition. Was it did, was it very clear? Was it a bit risky? Like for someone who maybe looks at uh, your lifestyle and aspires to do what you do, when's the the time to jump ship and really just dive into this headlong. Oh yeah. That's, that's a tricky one. And I, it, there's, there's so much risk involved. Uh, no matter what you're, you're going to be taking some risk because you're going to be going from, you know, if you've got a, f- a full-time job or you got benefits and everything else, you're going to be going from that to something that's very unknown, especially if you are just designing, uh, you're going to be getting into royalties, which you don't know when they're going to come. You don't know when your next game is going to get signed. And it's probably going to be a couple of years before it comes out. Or if you're self-publishing, you know, putting it out there, you might launch a game and it's not going to be successful. So there's always going to be a pretty big risk. So for me, I have to say I'm, I'm very, you know, privileged and very lucky that I was able to actually do this because most people wouldn't be able to do this. I had a good job. My wife had a really good job and, you know, we were able to save money um, you know, pay off all our debts and everything and get ourselves in a position where I could say, okay, we can survive on one income. Okay. At least for a while we have some money in savings. So if anything goes wrong, you know, that's fine. If I ever had to, and cross my fingers, this never happens. I have to go back, you know, to uh, working a day job, which, you know, after being an entrepreneur and, and, you know, working on your own, it's, you know, not, not very uh, enticing. Don't, don't <laughs> uh, tell on that. Yeah, yeah, but uh, really, it, for me, it was it was a push and pull. I had a push from where I was. I had been doing what I was doing for in the same industry for seventeen years. It was time for a change. I definitely knew that my last few years I needed a big change in some way. And at the same time, I was getting a pull into game design. It was something I really, really enjoyed. Something I thought I was getting much better at, and I could see myself having a future doing. So it was that push and pull along with planning for it. I mean, I, 
I could have left years earlier, probably gladly on my own, but you know, I wouldn't have the funds to be able to, to do it. So we wanted to make sure we were put in our, we put ourselves in a good position so we could go ahead and do that. But also I think it was very important to diversify and to kind of explore things and, and not just say like, okay, uh, I've got a timeline of like a year to get, you know, games signed and, and make this amount of money or something like that. And if I don't make it, then I'm going to have to go back to my day job to be able to have a bit of a longer cushion and to have different routes I could go. I was very fortunate to get a job teaching at Laurier University for a semester uh, covering a mat leave in game design and development. That just fell kind of in at the right time. And that was before I was thinking of consider, uh, considering doing my own course. So that kind of prepped me and got me a little more prepared so I could launch my own course. I had already had one book out and I had ideas for other books. So I was diversifying by uh, designing games for other publishers, writing books, doing teaching on my own and at the university, and then, then thinking about, you know, what would it be like to be a publisher and that type of thing? Because you're, if one revenue stream is kind of dry or you're kind of waiting on things, at least you have other things to approach. So I think anybody that's thinking about this should at least have kind of a plan B or at least some ideas of other things that they may be able to do. Because I know other people too who are like, yeah, I'm going to be a game designer and things just didn't work out. They couldn't find publishers. They had bad experiences or whatnot. And then they wound up finding out that they're really, really good at rule book writing or graphic design or something else. So sometimes you'll discover that, you know, this adjacent thing over here is mm -hmm. something you're really, really good at. And maybe you want to pivot and go in that direction and you can actually make a better career out of it and get and be more in demand because there's, you know, there's a million game designers out there, but there's only a handful of people who can do some of these other tasks that are very difficult for people. Right. Uh, you know, I was um, talking to one of my, so my graphic designer, his name is Chip Cole. He does um, a lot of freelance graphic design for, um, for awesome projects. He's also self-published his own board game, uh, which was called Cryptid Cafe. We, we actually, uh, the reason that we connected was because he became a client of ours and he relaunched Cryptid Cafe with us and it, it did, he changed the art style and it did really well and, and that sort of thing. And uh, then I needed a, you know, an, a, a graphic designer with his experience for deliverance. And that's, that's kind of how we, we connected. For freelancers, a lot of the time when I see a freelancer, I see they have one large client that, you know, in some cases, maybe somebody that they used to work for is like full-time gig, maybe in other cases, not chip in his case, it was like some kind of magazine and uh, you know, that he, that he put together like once a quarter. And that was like the steady Eddie to allow him to do all of his other design work. Then he kind of goes through a way. Well, it takes like three quarters of his time though. And then he goes through the season where, you know, his game is effective and he's got some freelance business. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm now a client of his and other things. And, and he ends up leaving his full-time or, you know, whatever we'll say, like the full-time freelance client to, to make a go of it. And then I asked him like, so what are you doing to, you know, he's, he's working hardcore on his games and other things like that. And I asked him what he was doing and he was every once in a while, he designed a website for somebody. He would use his graphic design to kind of pay the bills when the, you know, he had lean months and that kind of thing so that they didn't have to dip into their savings. As you mentioned, adjacent to what it is that he does anyway, using his skill set that he has. And, and I, I think that that's kind of cool. It just gives him a whole lot more time and autonomy. But there's risk, though. It's kind of scary to just like leave what was working, right? Even though it might have not have been 
working like a well-oiled machine. It was at least working, you know, decently enough to keep you in your home and the heat on and the lights on. Right. Absolutely. So, so what would you, I mean, do you teach, do you talk about this, this concept of, I, I think, you know, the, the, the way that I've heard it is the burning the boats concept where you're like, I'm, I'm doing this, I'm making a, a full, I'm giving the old college tries as they would say some, you know, in some places, the U S do, do you talk about that in your game design course at all? Or, you know, like just going for it, quitting your job or, or at least, you know, getting off of the fence and, and trying to make it happen. Yeah. It's, it's funny. Cause one of the, the last things I say in my, uh, in my first book, the board game designers guide is don't quit your day job. <laughs> and then, uh, I had a friend who read it and she, and she's like, Hmm, well, you didn't quite follow that advice. I said, well, you know, it wasn't like I, you know, just, uh, you know, dropped everything one day and said, I, I quit and this is what I'm going to do now. Right. It was, it was well-planned, well-intentioned. Right. And like I said, I, I was in a very fortunate position to be able to do that and not everybody can, but you know, there's a, my uh, latest book actually is board game designers guide to careers in the industry. And I really wanted to explore other careers outside of, you know, board game design. So, you know, there's obviously like publishing and graphic design and all these other things. Right. Mm -hmm. So, you know, and I interviewed, you know, probably, I think it was like 30 or 40 different people in the industry. And what most of them said was, you know, I was doing this on the side, building up my portfolio, especially as like a graphic designer or an artist, mm -hmm. um, getting some projects under me, you know, maybe not earning some of my full potential, but, you know, doing some free stuff, doing some underpaid stuff so I could get a portfolio together. And then I can present it to, you know, some bigger publishers and stuff like that and start getting more work. And then once it started to kind of snowball and I was seeing like, there's so much coming in, I could do this full time now. It's kind of a gradual thing from like a hobby or like a side hustle, if you want to call it, uh, to building up to that. I, I wouldn't ever recommend somebody who's, you know, starting to design their first game to be like, I'm just going to quit everything and I'm going to put everything into this and hope I hope I can pay the bills and everything because it's going to be a while before all that pays off. So it's good to either, you know, have a couple of games published or have some ins, have some experience first before you transition. Mm -hmm. So, you know, you can be safe, especially if paying the bills is going to be a big concern for you. Yeah. And there's no, there's no worse, you know, there's, there's that one aspect of entrepreneurship. I, I joke sometimes, you know, the truth is that I think most people just from what I, from my experience, most people would be happier with a guaranteed paycheck and, and a full-time job and that kind of thing than they would be as an entrepreneur. I think that if the, um, if everything's going well, then it's really nice to have the autonomous schedule. But a lot of the time, you know, I, I mean, there were days where I would work 18 hours and it's like, you know, I would get up the next day and work, you know, 12 hours. And then, you know, I would get up the next day and work 12 more hours and for all of those days, I wouldn't make anything like there's no money coming in and, uh, that sucks <laughs> a lot. So it's, um, it's hard, you know, and I think that when somebody's looking, you know, when, whenever somebody's like, you know, talks to me about, oh, I want to, I just want to have control. I want to have creative control, um, you know, over my game and, and that kind of thing. It, it creates just in the, the advisor within me. I want to, I want to say like, do you realize what you're signing up for? Like the, the misery that you're signing up for by becoming a business owner. And sometimes they do and they're ready and they're like, oh yes, I do. I know it's going to be hard, but I'm prepared. But every once in a while you catch somebody that's like, I don't know. I just figure I'd, 
you know, it's, it's costing me, you know, 50 bucks a game for my manufacturer. I figured I'd just sell it for 75, you know, on Kickstarter. It's like, no, you don't understand like what you're getting into. You're, you're not going to be able to deliver. It's going to be the worst. You're going to be like the guy that increased the size of his comic. You guys remember this at all? It was like a six by eight sized comic that, uh, that, you know, successfully funded and it reached a stretch goal that brought it from a six inch wide by eight inch tall comic to 10 inch wide by 14 inches tall. And that, um, you know, was feasible with his, you know, with the amount of money they raised, but that changed the fulfillment costs. It like quadrupled the fulfillment cost and he couldn't ship them. And, uh, he ended up burning them all. He had, he had them at his house and he, he recorded a video of him lighting them on fire <laughs> for everyone. Oh I don't know goodness. where that is. I'm sure that's going to be a fun one for Sean to find, but, um, I think, I think we referenced it before. So I'll just have to, okay. <laughs> yeah, there you go. <clears throat> but I, I think that, um, you know, one of the most, you know, we, we did this podcast a, a long while back. It was like, we called it the four and a half potential outcomes of, of your Kickstarter. And they, they're not all great. You know, one is, um, you know, you, you succeed, of course you fail, you're, you're probably going to fail. You barely succeed. You, you fund decently well. And then you have what we called catastrophic success where it maybe made a lot, maybe it didn't need to make a lot, but it, in any case, it ends up being catastrophically bad when you may, you know, when the numbers scale a whole lot, sometimes things change, right. And sometimes it, people are just, are not prepared for that. You know, what, what indicates your, you know, that, that somebody in, in your course has that attitude and how do you correct that? I guess, is that something that you address at all? Well, fortunately I haven't come across too many people who are, you know, ready to, you know, dive in completely unprepared. Uh, but when anybody ever has questions, you know, how, how does this work or whatnot, then I'm always very willing to, to answer those questions. And I think a lot of people, when they get the responses back there, oh, well, I didn't realize how much was really involved and, you know, how much work it actually is to run a Kickstarter and run a business and collect money. And, oh yeah, if, you know, there's that common thing of, you know, if you make a $5 mistake on a project, you know, where you sold, you know, 500 copies, that's nothing compared to, you know, making that same $5 mistake when you sold 10,000 copies. So you can be the victim of your own success, um, you know, doing something, you know, huge. And then you could, you could lose a lot. You could lose your house over something like that. So, it just goes back to, you know, just, just planning, being prepared, know what you're getting into. I was actually talking to, to somebody uh, just earlier today. He actually asked me to have a quick look over his Kickstarter page and um, his shipping wa was the same flat rate around the world. And I was just like, you might want to look at that a little more carefully because yeah, you have like $15 for the base and $20 for the deluxe. But, um, you know, if you're sending it to somewhere, you know, very, very remote, that could easily be, you know, 60, 80, a hundred dollars for that one. And Sure, you may those may only be one-offs, but what if you have a whole bunch of people that order from there? And and did you take into account freight shipping and and everything else? So, you know, those questions are going to come up. So, like I always just try to, you know, educate, make sure people are at least prepared for these things before they, you know, go and hit the launch button. Yeah, and I think that every single person listening to this podcast, unless you are, you know, Chris Birch of Modifius, um, which I hope he listens to this podcast, but I have a feeling he's too busy. You need to hear that advice. Like you need somebody to tell you, I mean, first of all, you have to understand the basics of how to get something delivered. And you have to study under people like Joe that can 
teach you the way, right? This is the way, as uh, the Mandalorian says. And so, yeah, so I, I want to get into your course a little bit, but uh, Rick, you had, you had you wanted to chat. I was just going to say, like, you, know, you just talked about shipping with the flat rate. Now, I think uh, someone in here sort of did that, <clears throat> Andrew. But, uh, <laughs> but it, it's funny because, like, you know, in America, shipping is so, like, commoditized. Like, it's like everyone in America expects free shipping. So the shipping may be like, like you said, 60 bucks, but no one's going to buy it if it's, if you, if you outright say this shipping is $60 uh, <laughs> where it's like, Oh, it's only 20. Okay. I'll, I'll do it. Um, so that was, that was just a side note. Sorry. I didn't mean to interrupt, but yeah, no, shipping, <clears throat> shipping is crazy. Point. So for deliverance, I have my deluxe pledge, which was $89. And if somebody were to uh, get that on the Kickstarter, I charged $9 for shipping and what I was doing was subsidizing the true shipping. And that, this was in the US only. I was subsidizing the true cost of shipping by anywhere from like $7 to $15 uh, per copy. So, you know, depend, depending on um, the type of copy and where, or the type of game and uh, where it was going and that kind of thing. It, 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 and actually, of course, with this whole supply chain thing, you know, it could cost me you know, easily $20 a copy out of the margin that, that I would make. But that's, that's something that I was prepared for. I actually was like, I could charge less for this, but then I would be like, Hey, everybody, $29 shipping or, you know, that kind of thing. It just wouldn't be very palatable. And then, you know, after in, in, uh, our, our post campaign pledge manager for deliverance, you know, you, you pay $89 and then $9 shipping you're paying 98 total dollars, right? And the the number when people are looking at Kickstarter, I think that it's a little different, you know, where they are looking at your shipping chart, you know? So on your Kickstarter page, you have to put together a shipping chart to show people the estimated cost of your shipping. And, you know, if the numbers are too high, you know, especially people in the EU and other places like that, they're going to look at that first. They're going to say, okay, the base game is $49 or whatever. What is the cost of shipping? Because they understand they have to add those two numbers together. And that's actually how much they're going to pay. And, and if that number is too unpalatable, then they will not back the game. Maybe they'll follow it and, you know, um, maybe back for a dollar and harass you about your shipping prices or something in the comment section uh, to try to get you to improve. But, you know, if the numbers are, are really low, usually I find backers are really happy to jump in. It, it could end up in disaster for the creator though, right? Because you're not actually collecting enough to, to successfully deliver your rewards. And um, so for deliverance, I, I, you know, that $9 really mattered. If it was $10, less people would have backed the game because $10 is not as nearly as palatable as a single digit, which was $9. Right. And then, um, in the post campaign pledge manager though, which is more like e-commerce, I raised my shipping to $10 because the deluxe version being at $89 with $10 shipping makes 99. And that's, there's no difference between 99 and 98 in the mind of a customer. All I'm doing is losing out on $1 at that point. So I figured I would, kind of expand there and you know i'm gonna lose whatever eighty thousand dollars on on shipping the game but thankfully we've collected enough that we can do that i guess i don't know about losing but you know i'll be investing 
I don't know, whatever you call it. For sure. That's a good point, though, because, you know, people are getting used to, you know, free shipping, through, especially through Amazon and that type of thing. You know, you spend a certain amount, you get free shipping. So people are getting so accustomed to that, that as creators, we do often have to roll part of the shipping into it. Because if you have a, a $49 game and it's going to be, you know, 29 for shipping, people are going to look at that and they're going to say, why is shipping more than half the price of the game? <laughs> but if you can roll that back a little bit and, you know, it's, you know, $69 game and $9 shipping or mm -hmm. something like that. It's the same price in total, yep. but it just, it is more palatable to, to people to do that. So it's definitely a consideration, something that I've done as well. Andrew's done. So definitely something uh, to consider when you're comparing the price of the game versus mm -hmm. the price of shipping to make sure it's not a too high of a percentage of the game. Definitely. And another thing is, you know, when you list your shipping on Kickstarter, it's an estimate right? We're estimating what the number is going to be. I was, you know, in 2021, we went to kick my, my, our game went to Kickstarter August or, or gosh, it ended August. I don't know. I don't even know anymore. It's the summer of 2021, June, July, August. We were estimating for like the following year and, you know, shipping out the following year where our goal is to deliver by August of 2022. But you know, being the year before, they are going to raise their rates by an unknown amount. You know, in theory, it's, it's you know, maybe like 5% or 10% or whatever. And we need to kind of plan for that. So we're estimating what we think it's going to be. But when it's different, I launched right before the supply chain crisis and boxes of, uh, you know, from China, instead of costing $4,000 or $6,000 for a container, they cost at one point like $36,000 per container. And being that I would have five or six regions to send to, that would have broken our campaign at that point if I were shipping there. So thankfully the, the prices of containers are, are down significantly from their height of the COVID insanity for freighting your product from you know across the ocean. But it was higher than predicted by a significant amount. And so I think one pitfall that for anybody listening, you know, avoid giving or avoid offering free shipping on your Kickstarter campaign. Always estimate a number, even if it's low, because, you know, we estimate $9. Maybe when the final shipping tallies up and everything like that, it's time to actually, you know, charge the, the credit cards on Backerkit and, and whatnot. I may find that, you know, the, the actual shipping is three or $4 higher than I am able to bear as a, as a company. And so charging people, giving people an estimate uh, for shipping and then charging a little bit higher than that estimate, if it's necessary, is something that I have seen many creators do over the years. It sounds like a much worse thing than it actually is. It doesn't, you know, if there's a reason as to why you're charging $2 more or, or whatever it, as long as you can explain it and be transparent about it, I think that you can, that you can actually do that. You can't do that if you offered free shipping though. <laughs> yeah. And I, th I think that you made a good point there. And a lot of it is about communications. And I know we were going to talk more about, um, you know, going from one campaign to the next and growing there. And part of that I think is just really keeping really good, strong communications with your backers, you know, whether it's good news, bad news, or, or somewhere in between, um, you have things like estimates for shipping, you have uh, delays in shipping, you have delays in manufacturing, things are going to happen, especially with your first project, everything's not going to run as smoothly as you'd like it. So you're going to have to, you know, be able to explain that and, and be open and honest and upfront. And I think in most cases, as long as you 
are open and you keep the lines of communication open. I think people are really good about that. Um, and you know, if it's going to cost a couple extra dollars and they're like, you know what, this is, a, this is a great game. I don't mind contributing to it. It just depends how you do it. If you come out and just basically say, everybody's going to have to pay $10 more or you're not getting your game and it's going to sit here in, in China and you're never going to see it again. Well, obviously that's not a very good, uh, plan of attack, but you know, if you're, if you're able to communicate with people and they understand, you know, I think everybody understands now that, you know, Kickstarter generally, you know, a lot of projects don't deliver on time. And that, you know, there is a shipping crisis going on. There could be delays and these shipping numbers are estimates. And, you know, it's been talked about so much, the cost of containers and the cost of everything going up so much. I think people are at least aware of it. Um, so you can communicate and have those discussions with people. You know, we're talking about transitions, how to bring a, your crowd from one project to the next. Do you have an example of where that just worked out really well for you, where you had a certain game and the transition to another game? just was so fluid and then maybe on the opposite side of that coin an example of where that didn't work out too well and just maybe talk a little bit about i know we've covered a little bit about this already but just go into why why was that the case versus why it wasn't the case on an example where it didn't work out for sure yeah so with my game relics of rajavahara i had um you know a good a, a pretty good solid campaign I had uh, 1,539 backers and they were, you know, really excited about the game. And it's a, it's a solo puzzly kind of game you play by yourself. You know, some people have played with their spouse or their kids and that kind of thing, but ultimately you're like, you know, pushing around blocks and trying to solve levels like you would in like a, an old school Zelda game or adventures of Lolo or something like that on the NES. And people really resonated with that. And they, you know, they, they enjoyed the experience of playing that. And that game just lent itself really well to an expansion. I mean, some games lend themselves well to an expansion. Some seem kind of tacked on. Some have an expansion to fix a problem with the original game, that kind of thing. But since it was like a level-based system, it just made complete sense. Like if this game did well, that people would probably want more levels, more content, more, more different new challenges and that kind of thing. So that's exactly what I did with the expansion, Montello's Revenge. Um, you know, 30 new levels and I introduced, you know, new obstacles. So especially things that you couldn't do before in the, in the first game, like there were some instances where like, oh, I want to get this block up there, but you, there's no way to lift it or move it up. Well, now there's ramps. So there's all sorts of different ways to maneuver things around and that kind of thing. So um, I think in that case, it was a fairly easy, seamless transition because I was going from something that people knew to just kind of more of that with different twists and turns. People were already kind of looking forward to that. And I also specifically launched it right at the tail end of delivering the previous one. So people, they all had it. People were excited. They had just broken it out, just started to play it. Um, so it was kind of fresh in their mind. It hadn't, you know, been sitting in their shelf for a year or two, that kind of thing. So I think moving from one to the next, especially with an expansion that really just adds to your game can work really, really well. Um, so then a counterpoint to that one that didn't work quite so well, or at least that I didn't think would work so well. Um, I had another game with another publisher called King of Indecision, and it's a two to five player game with a lot of, um, uh, a little bit of push your luck. And you don't know exactly when's going to happen. You're trying to get your offering into the king before he changes his mind throughout the game. And my publisher said, hey, do you want to, you know, throw this on in your pledge manager uh, for Relics of Rajvahar? You can add the games on here and stuff. And I, I thought about it. I thought, you know, that's a good idea. Maybe he can make a couple extra sales. But ultimately, it wasn't a solo game. You couldn't play it solo. So, you know, that's part of the audience, you know, that was definitely looking for this. 
Plus also, you know, my games were being manufactured by a different manufacturer. Uh, they were being done in China. He already had his games in North America. I was like, how am I going to get the games logistically? If somebody orders it, I'm going to have to get the game from China to somebody in like Europe. And then I also have to get a game sent from North America there, like two separate shipments. And this is going to cost a lot of money to <laughs> be shipping things around and not be in the same place. So especially because it wasn't really like on brand or really matching the same audience, um, but also just logistically, it just didn't quite make sense to kind of be, you know, passing games around and trying to get them to people. It, it just wouldn't have been cost effective. Well, that's all the time we have for this week's episode of Crowdfunding Nerds. For more resources, articles, and to listen to past podcasts, please visit us at crowdfundingnerds.com. Thank you all again for listening to this week's episode, and we'll see you next week. Stay nerdy.